If you have your Bibles, you can turn in them to John, John chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. John is in the New Testament towards the end of your Bible. You may notice that oftentimes when I'm preaching, I will reference a text and it will magically appear on the screen. But to some of your chagrin, when I read the main text, it's never on the screen. And you think if he can do it with his cross references during his sermon, why doesn't he do it with the main text before his sermon? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. It's because I want you to bring a Bible when you come to church, and I want you to use it. And if you didn't bring a Bible, I want you to grab one in the pew back in front of you and turn to the text so that you're following along in your own Bible with me. Okay, then, let us listen to God's Word. John 19, verse 38, all the way through chapter 20 and verse 18. These are the words of God. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped, stooped in to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him. Jesus said to her, 
Mary. She turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for this word. Lord, and we come this morning in faith that your son not only died for us, but that he rose. And so we pray now as we contemplate the meaning of his resurrection, the account that John has left us by the power of your spirit and the preservation of your hand, that you would cause us to see anew the wonder of all that goes with the resurrection, Lord. You would cause us to grow in our love for our Savior, grow in our love for you, Father, and grow in our appreciation of your Holy Spirit whom you have given to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, thankfully, the message that the apostles in the first century proclaimed didn't, the story that they told, the message that they told didn't end with Good Friday, with Jesus dying on the cross. As Paul declared to the Corinthians, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And then he goes on and he was buried. And then he goes on and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Summarized in one of the earliest creeds of the church, it goes like this, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose from the dead. So we come then today to the eyewitness account of John as he relates to us the events of Christ's burial and his resurrection. And without which of these two things, we could say this gospel, John's gospel, would actually be no gospel at all. For a story that ends with a dead Messiah and Savior is a story which has neither Messiah or Savior in it. So we pick up this morning where we left off this, this last week. Jesus had been crucified at the hands of Roman soldiers. The Jews had, you will remember, gone to Pilate and asked that the bodies would be taken down since the next day was the Sabbath and according to the law, to leave bodies hanging on a tree overnight would be to defile the land. So they were extra concerned because the next day was the Sabbath and this was a Passover week. And so out of their desire not to defile the land, which is so ironic, and John brings out all these ironies, they want Jesus' body to be taken down from the cross. So the soldiers come and they confirm that Jesus is dead. That confirmation happens when they, the spear goes into his side and both water and blood flow out, confirming to them that Jesus is indeed dead. And then John tells us this man, Joseph of Arimathea had gone to Pilate and had asked for the body of Jesus. John tells us that Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus because he, he followed Jesus, he believed in Jesus, but he, was, he, he didn't come out with his faith because he was afraid of the Jews, or rather his counterparts. Because Luke tells us that he was actually a member of the Jewish council. And Joseph had not consented to the plans of the council to put 
Jesus to death. But when they carried out that wicked plan, Joseph had somehow found his courage. And he went to Pilate and he asked Pilate for the body. He was a wealthy man. Joseph had a tomb nearby, or at least he had access to this tomb nearby. And so he puts his reputation on the line and he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus so that Jesus' body might receive a proper burial. And it's interesting when you think about it, because he did so, his name has come down and is known today. He is known today as an honorable man. He was once a disciple, a secret disciple of Jesus, and now he is a disciple of Jesus that is known to the whole world. Likewise, we're told that Nicodemus, that Pharisee who came to Jesus all the way back in John 3, remember he came to Jesus at night because he too was afraid to be uh, forthright with his faith in Christ, went to Jesus and asked Jesus about the kingdom. Nicodemus comes and he cares for the body of our Lord, bringing with him expensive spices that were used for preparing the body for burial. And John tells us all of this was according to the, the customs of the Jews. The body was wrapped in these linen cloths that they had brought with aloes and spices. And the aloes and spices and the myrrh that he mentions, it wasn't because they embalmed the body like the Egyptians did, but it was because they used these to cover the stench of decomposition that would happen. So they would wrap the body in this cloth and then there was a face cloth and they would put these aloes and spices in and then they would place the body into a tomb that was, you can imagine, a, 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 a rock wall and then a cave that was carved out of the side of a rock wall. And so then there would be a large stone that would roll over the opening of the tomb that would keep out grave robbers and keep out animals and scavengers. And then after they placed the body in there all wrapped in the claws with the aloes and the spices, they would leave it in there. And the loved ones of the deceased would wait for about a year. And then they would come back to the tomb and they would collect the bones and they would put the bones in a box called an ossuary. So this was, this was the tradition of the Jews. Not all Jews got this kind of burial. This was a, the burial of, of the wealthy. And Jesus was given this kind of burial. But as we know, this burial ended like no other burial. Some of you might be thinking when I say that about Lazarus, and we really should, there is some uh, helpful uh, uh, parallels between the raising of Lazarus and Jesus' resurrection. But if you think about Lazarus, Lazarus was raised at the powerful command of Jesus, and as miraculous as, as that was, it didn't compare to the resurrection of our Lord because Lazarus was raised to die another day. But when our Lord rose, he rose to never die again. So chapter 19 ends with this note that Joseph and Nicodemus had laid Jesus in this tomb that was close at hand. The next day was the Sabbath. That day, God's people rested. It was uh, typological or it was patterned after God resting when he created the world. And so on the Sabbath day, the Lord's body laid undisturbed so that we might even say on that day, he rested from his work. On Friday, he said, it is finished. 
And on the Sabbath, the Lord rested in that tomb. He laid undisturbed. And then the next day, the first day of the week, Sunday, something happened. Actually, a lot of things happened, and John tells us about them. First, John tells us about the empty, the empty grave, the empty tomb. Look at verse 1. Now, one, now, on the first day, he says, of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. One of the amazing things to me about the resurrection accounts in the Gospels is that in all of them, you see very clearly that none of Jesus' closest disciples, none of the apostles expected it. In fact, after his crucifixion, it seems that they all just went back to their homes distraught, scared, and confused. Even though he had told them multiple times that he was going to be put to death and he would rise from the grave on the third day, they apparently hadn't connected the dots. But on that morning of the resurrection, on this Sunday morning, John tells us how it is that the the disciples, the closest disciples of Jesus, find out the good news. Mary Magdalene, a follower of Christ, had gone to the tomb early in the morning. John doesn't tell us why, but we know from the other gospel accounts, she went there with additional spices for the body of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to to this woman, a lot of misunderstanding has been perpetuated about this woman, but the gospel accounts tell us actually very little about her. Aside from the crucifixion and resurrection accounts, the only other time that Mary Magdalene is mentioned in the gospels is in Luke 8, where we're told that she was among the women who followed Jesus and supported Jesus, and that she had been healed of evil spirits. Luke said seven demons had gone out of her presumably by the power of Jesus. And we can understand then how this liberation from such spiritual oppression caused this woman to love her Savior. The first time she's mentioned in John's account is in chapter 19, where she's standing beside the cross, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mark tells us that when they lay Joseph and and, uh, Nicodemus laid Jesus in his tomb, Mary was there as well. She apparently was the last person or one of the last persons to leave when Jesus was crucified, waiting until his body was taken down, following the men who took took him to his grave, and then watching to make sure he was cared for And then listen to this. This is amazing. She's the first one back. On the Sabbath, she rests along with all of God's people, all of the disciples of Christ. And then when Sunday comes at first light, Mary is there to ensure that Christ's body is properly cared for. But when she gets to the tomb, she finds something that she didn't expect the stone had been rolled away. And assuming then that this meant that someone had taken the body of Jesus, she runs back to tell Peter and John. 
Now we're going to come back to Mary because the story shifts back to her in verse 11. But for now, our attention, John draws our attention to Peter and John and what they discover when they reach the tomb. Look at verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, John tells us, because for some reason it seems very important for him to know, that while both of them started running to the tomb together. In other words, when Mary said, ready, set, go, they were both on the line. It was a fair start. And while Peter was the first one to go into the tomb, he just wants us to be very clear that he actually got there first because he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I'm not sure why he tells us that, but he seems to think that it's important probably because that's what happened. But when they both get there, they, dis- they discover that Jesus' body is gone. They both discover that the tomb is empty. And this fact, the reality of the empty tomb, is one of the key components of the apostolic witness concerning the resurrection. All four Gospels, all four Gospels include the empty tomb. All four of them tell about the empty, the empty tomb being discovered, that when they got there, Jesus wasn't there. It was the first hint, the empty tomb was the first hint that Christ Jesus had risen. And the empty tomb posed a real dilemma to those who denied that Jesus rose. Because all, the opponents, all that the opponents of Christ had to do to shut down the disciples, to shut down this gospel movement, To refute the disciples' claim that Jesus rose from the grave, all they had to do was produce the body of Jesus. But they couldn't. All they could do was fabricate a story that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus. At the end of Matthew, we're told this is actually what the chief priests did. But you see, one of the hiccups was that Roman soldiers were posted at the tomb upon their request to guard it. They had gone to Pilate and asked Pilate to post Roman soldiers at the tomb, and he had. And so the question was, and has always been since then, how was it that if if the disciples actually stole the body of Jesus, how was it that they got past the guard? And the claim that the apostles came while the soldiers were sleeping was a preposterous one because, for one, they would have woken up when the stone was being rolled away. Would not have been a quiet event. Second, these were highly trained soldiers. And third, the guard would have likely included anywhere from four soldiers all the way up to a dozen. And then furthermore, if the apostles were making up the story about the resurrection, then you have to ask, why would they have included women as the first witnesses to the empty tomb? Why, why did they write into the story that this woman, Mary Magdalene, was the first one to see Jesus? You say, well, what's the problem with that? Well, at that time, women were not considered to be reliable witnesses in that day. 
So if they wanted to come up with a convincing story, then it's highly unlikely that they would have come up with a story the way that they did. And then furthermore, how did they convince all the other witnesses who said they saw Jesus alive and well after his death? You know, according to Paul, he writes to the Corinthians, he, he, he said this includes over 500 di- individuals, over 500, there was a time when Jesus appeared to over 500 individuals, and then Paul says, many of whom are still alive today. He wrote, when he wrote that, they were still alive. People could go and, and talk to them. And more puzzling than all of this, what did they have to gain from it? Their testimony of Christ's resurrection gained them nothing, and it cost them everything. Most of the apostles, if not all, were martyred for their commitment to Christ as the risen Lord. They suffered terrible persecution for their testimony that Christ rose from the grave. But you see, this fact of the empty tomb was undeniable, even to the opponents of of Christ. And this fact served as a compelling evidence to the resurrection of Christ. If he was not risen, then why could his opponents not produce a body? Where did his body go? And if the disciples had indeed stolen the body, then what would cause them to perpetuate a lie that brought them no zero earthly benefit and eventually cost them their lives? Now, it's noteworthy that John tells us the moment when he came to believe that Jesus had risen. Because when Mary came and told them, that wasn't their first reaction. Peter and John's first reaction was, he, it wasn't, oh, he must be risen. It was, oh no, somebody took the body. But John tells us here the moment when he came to believe. Look at verse 8. Then the other disciple, who in case you had forgotten, had reached the tomb first. Again, let's just be clear on that. Also went in, and he saw, and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now, what was it that John saw that caused him to believe that Jesus had risen? Was it simply the fact that the tomb was empty? Well, certainly that was a part of it, yes, but why not assume, as Mary had suggested, that someone had come and taken the the body of Jesus away? That was the line of thinking he was going with. That was probably what he was considering as the possible explanation for the empty tomb. But then something happened, and he believed. Something about the theory of Jesus' body being stolen away didn't add up, because when he went into the tomb, he saw something. You see, the tomb wasn't, in fact, completely empty. Something was left behind. Remember what he had said that Peter saw when when he entered the tomb. The cloth that Jesus' body was wrapped in was lying there where his body once was. And then he says the face cloth was there too, but it was folded up by itself. And you can imagine that John is thinking as he sees those things, why would anyone steal the body of Jesus, the body of my Lord, but then unwind all the wrappings around him? Why would they take the time to remove his face cloth and then fold it up neatly and place it by the rest. You see, the only thing of value in that tomb were the linen cloths with the myrrh and the spices. 
So if it was a grave robber, it made no sense that he came in and he unwrapped all that stuff and he took Jesus, but he left what was valuable. And beside that, moving an unwrapped body was surely more difficult than moving one that was already wrapped up. And for what purpose? You see, it was the sight of the grave clothes there in the empty tomb, mysteriously left by the one who had once warned them that caused the apostle John to believe that his savior had indeed risen from the dead. And perhaps it was in that moment when he was looking at those grave clothes and he saw the face cloth lying there folded up neatly that he began to remember some of the words of Jesus. Some of the words that he already recorded for us in this gospel. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. I lay my life down that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And what had he said? He had said, I have authority to take it up again. And then what did he say to Martha and Mary? I am the resurrection and the life. And all of this starts to come together. And John believes Though at this point, as verse 9 tells us, John did not understand how Christ's resurrection was a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. He saw in the tomb the evidence that Christ had risen, and he believed. And John's faith was confirmed when he saw the risen Lord Jesus later that day, alive and in glorified state. And so let it be for all who read John's testimony, John's gospel that the evidence of his testimony concerning the empty grave with the remaining cloths of death shed by the Savior in his resurrection would bring all of us to believe as John believed. And one day our faith too will be confirmed when we see our Savior face to face. Now then Mary, verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. It seems that after John and And Peter had returned home. Mary had come back to the tomb. And when she looks in, she doesn't notice the linen cloths lying there as John and Peter had. Perhaps her grief had hindered her from seeing that evidence that was lying right before her. But even more incredible than that, she saw two angels. And even more incredible than the fact that she saw two angels is that she seemed completely unfazed by the sight of them. One wonders if Mary even knew what it was that she was seeing and hearing at this moment. So great was her grief over the loss of her Lord that when the angels ask her, speak to her, why she is weeping, she responds as if she's just speaking to any ordinary person. They took my Lord and I don't know where they laid him. I suppose that what's happening in Mary's heart and mind isn't all that difficult to understand. Many of you know how grief, even grief over a lost loved one, can cloud your judgment. 
how it can cause you to miss something that's right in front of you, how grief, when it's so great, can cause you to lose touch with reality. And here this is what seems to be happening with Mary. She says she's weeping because she assumes that someone has taken the body of her Lord and she doesn't know where to find him. By the way, I, I, I think it's wonderful how she calls Jesus my Lord here. It shows her devo- devotion to Jesus, not simply as the Lord, but she says someone has taken my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. But what was she hoping for? What if she had found what she was looking for, the body of Jesus? Would it have eased her grief with the lifeless corpse? The lifeless body of Jesus provide any peace to her troubled heart at that moment? And so it's fitting that when she turns and she sees the living Jesus standing right there before her, she doesn't recognize him. John doesn't tell us why this is, but we shouldn't miss that she was looking for the lifeless body of Jesus and what she saw was the risen and glorified Christ standing there. Perhaps it was the tears in her eyes or perhaps it was that she was so distraught and intent on finding the body of Christ that in that moment she couldn't even grasp what it was or who it was that she was seeing. And Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? I love how the Lord gently prods Mary with these questions. Why is it that you're weeping, Mary? Is it really that you can't find the body of your Lord? Or is it because you think that you've lost him forever? Whom are you seeking? Not just what are you seeking, but whom are you seeking? We might surmise that Jesus was hinting at his resurrection, almost as if to say, Mary, don't look for my lifeless body anymore. What you're looking for, what you long for is me And I am no longer dead, but I'm alive. And notice that even still, Mary doesn't know who's speaking to her. She gives the same answer to Jesus that she gave to the angels. Someone has taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. And then something happens. Look at the text. Something happens that opens her eyes. The voice of Jesus calling her name. Look at this, verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now consider this, the significance of this moment with me for, for a minute. The first person to see the resurrected Lord Jesus is Mary. It's not one of his apostles but it's a woman whose life had been radically changed by the Lord. She was a faithful disciple, and our merciful Savior chose to appear first to this woman who had come to his tomb, overcome with the grief of the reality of his death, to honor him and give care to his body. And Jesus chooses to appear to her first. Yet, even though she was the first to see the resurrected Christ, it wasn't by sight that she came to believe. Isn't that incredible? She's the first person to see the resurrected Lord Jesus, yet it wasn't by her sight that she came to believe in Jesus. What was it by? It was by hearing his voice. 
It was by hearing his voice call her name. He said, Mary, and immediately when he said Mary, she knew the voice of her Savior. He was alive and he was standing before her. And you know what this is? It's a wonderful illustration of what Jesus had taught back in John 10. Do you remember what he taught about being the good shepherd? He said in John 10, 10 starting in verse 3, the sheep hear his, that is the shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. And verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So it was with Mary. And so it is with every individual who hears this gospel message of Jesus Christ and believes on him. They read the words of Jesus recorded for us in the gospels. And as they read his word, they hear the voice of their savior, the one who laid down his life for them and took it back up again. And as the crucified and risen Lord, he gives them eternal life and no one can snatch them out of his hands. Now, I praise the Lord, this is the case for so many of you who are here today. You've come to faith. You've come to faith in Christ Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, the one who died for you, the one who was buried, and the one who three days later rose from the grave. And because you believe in him, and he promised that he'd give you eternal life, he has given you eternal life, and you know the joy of knowing and following your Savior. Let me just say to those of you who may still be skeptical to this gospel truth, because I'm not going to assume that every single person in here does believe this message. Let me just say to you, it might seem to you a bit fantastical that Jesus really was the son of God in flesh, that he really died and rose from the grave. But I want to challenge you today. Don't ignore the evidence that is right before you. Look at the testimony of the apostles concerning the resurrection. Look at the testimony of John. Consider the words of Jesus and listen for the voice of your Savior as you read these words. I might put it to you just as Jesus put it to Mary on that day. Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Have you really sought after the risen Savior? Or have you merely in your life treated Jesus as a historical figure? Someone who perhaps was a good teacher, but came to an unfortunate end. Listen, if he rose, then all that he said about himself was true. And all the promises he gave to those who believe on him are true as well. In him, you can have eternal life. In him, you can know the truth. And the truth can set you free. Now, there's... One small detail to this story I want us to see before we close. One small detail, and hidden within that detail is the story of mankind. Verse 15, look at that again. What an ironic mistake that Mary makes when she first sees Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And look at what John tells us. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. Why would Mary suppose that he was the gardener? It's gardener. Where'd you get gardener from, Mary? Why not visitor or something else? Why not a random person that is passing by? Why gardener? Well, the answer is pretty simple. John nineteen forty one. Maybe you missed this. 
Where was the tomb? Look at this. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb. Look, Mary assumed that Jesus was the gardener because the tomb was in a garden. Isn't that strange? The tomb was in a garden. Think about that. A gar- what is a garden? A garden is a place of life and beauty. And what is a tomb? A tomb is a place of death and decay. But you see, it's not just that contrast that I want you to notice. It's the threat of life and death, garden and tomb, that has been woven into the story of mankind from the very beginning. You see, in the beginning, there was a man in the garden. And in that garden, there was no tomb. Why? Because there was no death. And by that one man, Adam, Scripture tells us that sin came into the world and death spread and the world became a tomb. And now, a new Adam has come. A new gardener has come. Mary spoke more rightly than she knew. A new gardener has come. And this one man, through his obedience, died the death of man and for mankind. And he put death, and he was put to death by man, and then he was laid in a tomb. But in that tomb, what happened? In that tomb, death was defeated. And life spread out of the tomb and into the garden and into the world. You see, the story of man is being resolved right here for us in the story of Jesus Christ, in the resurrection of Christ. Sin and death had swallowed this world. It had all begun in the garden. And the story threatened to end in a grave. But the sun came. A better gardener came. And he went into the grave and he defeated death that our story might not end in a tomb, but in the garden, in life with God everlasting. 1 Corinthians 15, 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It's not coincidence. It's not a coincidence that in the tomb, or that in the garden there was a tomb, you see. This is, this is how God tells his stories. This is his God, how God has told the story of mankind. And it's only resolved in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, John, um, later on, we'll see this next week, John sees Jesus after his resurrection. He sees the resurrected Christ, just as Mary does. And then Jesus ascends into heaven 40 days later. And John, many, many, many years later, writes the book of Revelation. And he gets another glimpse at the Lord Jesus Christ. And and this time, it's a vision of Jesus. You might say this is the last time John saw Jesus before he died. And then he gets to see Jesus for eternity. But he's given a vision of the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. And he tells us about that vision in Revelation 1, 17. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. And because he does, 
you and I have hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we praise you and we thank you for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ today. Death was surely once my great opponent. Fear once had a hold on me, but the son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. Lord, we thank you and we praise you that your son is risen, that he's ascended and that he's at your right hand and that he has in his hands the keys of death and Hades. We thank you, Lord, that he rose so that the hope of mankind is in him, that the end of the story of man does not end in a tomb, in a grave, but in a garden filled with life. We thank you and we praise you for this. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen.